All right, good morning, everybody. This morning, I'm going to pick you up where we were when I did that whole thing on baptism. And we were talking about the conversion of Lydia's household and whether that implied infant baptism and all of the different things that various denominations uh, claim they learn from that whole thing of infant baptism halfway covenant, entering the covenant, all that kind of stuff. So that's where we were. Let's, um, let's go to the next slide here. There we go. Here we are on Acts, Acts uh, 16, 13, 14. And on the Sabbath day, went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposed, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for allowing us to be together to study your word, to open the scriptures, and to understand what you've said through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Then we showed this map where, where Philippi is. So, and we have pointed out that the historical geographical details of Acts are accurate to real history in real time and space. This is not myth. This is not a story. This is history. This is true to fact. There's no reason for anybody to doubt that Luke is who he claimed to be, and that Luke actually wrote Acts. In fact, the liberals were so trounced uh, by archaeological finds, historical finds, word, the, the study of the Greek language, the facts all pointed to a real Luke in the first century who had firsthand information about the Roman Empire, their system of government, their system of travel, how things worked, okay? And so don't listen to the critics. There's hardly any of them left. They're, they're just now, then they went to basically try to debunking all of history. Everything's a story. But this is cold, sober truth. Then we had this verse, and I spent a whole Sunday school just on all of the verses in Acts about baptism. And here it says that when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now this is like a big inclusio or bracket. Okay. And verse 40 picks it up again. So in between, we have a lot of things that happen. We have Lydia and Lydia. So Lydia, uh, a businesswoman from Thyatira, becomes a key person in Acts, and others will as well. And we can learn things from that. One thing is that God will use people who believe and are just available. You don't have to take a test, figure out what your gifts are, uh, you have to show up and serve. And who knows what the Lord's going to do? Lydia came to the Lord, and the next thing you know, the church is meeting in her house. 
and she becomes a, a person you read about in the Bible. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? But that's exactly what happened. So as I pointed out the last time, which is some time ago, it doesn't give us any detail about household members. As some commentators have pointed out, we don't know if she even had children. This could just be servants. Because servants were considered household members uh, in the Roman Empire. We don't know. It just doesn't say. And so the implication is, and we showed you many, many verses on this, that they too heard the gospel and believed. Elsewhere in Acts, it's believers who are baptized. I proved that last time. Now, here's a slide. Remember this one? And this really sends us in two total different directions, depending on uh, how you understand entering the church. If baptism is for believers and only believers, then that implies the church consists of the regenerate, those who have come to Christ are born of God, and the church, therefore, is a living organism of people who know Christ. But if you take the household approach and then just duplicate that through uh, decades and, and centuries, the church begins to consist of the descendants of believers. And then the church also has been turned into an institution that exists to perpetuate itself. And as I said in that last lecture, the church has gotten very good at perpetuating itself through human means, whether or not anybody knows the Lord. You can have huge, huge institutions that are actually opposed to the gospel, but they're called church. So I think there's way more biblical evidence for the idea that the church is the living body attached to the head, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and there are various metaphors, but the church is uh, consists of those who know God and I made this note about the visible and invisible church. In theology, we acknowledge God knows those who are his. And there will be people that appear to everyone to be Christian. Turns out they weren't. Like Judas. He was one of the 12, but he left. They went out from us because they were not of us. We don't know the total... Uh, role of the invisible church, but God does. That's okay. If people come, they fellowship, they say they know the Lord, they agree to things. It's not for us to try to do some kind of a... We can't become uh, people who know what the exactly visible, invisible church is. But here's what we can do. All right? This is what I found, and it was really the original idea of the Reformation, even though they turned everything into an institution. How do you know that you even have a valid church? This is what they decided at the time of the Reformation, because Rome said, we're the church. If you're not with us, you're not in the church. And they said, well, no, we don't believe you. You're apostate, and Pope is the Antichrist, so we don't buy that, that, that you're the church. Well, so then what is the church? Here's the answer. Wherever the word of God 
is purely taught. And the sacraments, I would use the term ordinances, are practiced according to the Lord's institution. It's not to be doubted that there a church exists. And I think that's a very simple and good definition. Uh, Because here's what I, I know to be true. If we teach the preach the gospel and teach the word of God carefully, thoroughly, with authority and power, and do binding and loosing biblically, what's allowed and what's forbidden, and um, do things the way we're told to do in the Scripture, according to the Lord's institution, there are some people that will agree to that to think they're Christian. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We've all probably known people who thought they were Christian and went to church and then are converted and say, oh, I thought I was a Christian, but now I'm really converted. That's okay. They're agreeing to the terms of the gospel and they're fellowshipping according to the Lord's institution and they're willing to sit under the pure teaching of the word of God. So you still have a visible, invisible church. But when you do it that way, the visible church is mostly the elect because they're the only ones that will tolerate it others will just get mad and leave they don't want to hear the pure word of God alright but see the institutional church has their own way of keeping everybody in line with their creeds and councils and traditions and everything that they do to keep themselves the institutional church but we don't have to be like that we purely teach the word of God and practice church discipline and do things God's way. We've got to let Patty in. Oh, admit. Yep. Welcome, Patty. We let you in. <laughs> uh, we don't want to keep anybody out of church. Okay. Uh, that was a purely technological problem. My laptop was uh, choking on things that it was supposed to do. But I knew we were going to have this epidemic. I would have bought a more expensive laptop. (laughs) All right. Anyhow, now, so also, now, just because I did get some pushback from a few people, I just held my ground. Uh, I'm talking about on the Internet. We're not saying that there aren't believers in institutional churches. I'm not saying that. The Lord knows those who are his. And there are some people who come to Christ and wherever they may be, anywhere in the world, and they're in this big institution and some of the scripture readings or uh, liturgy or whatever has some gospel in it. And they don't know anything else and nobody's giving them some other alternative. They're still part of the church, even if the institution as a whole is mostly apostate. And we've, had, we've met people who were in big institutional churches that had gone astray and they stayed a long time because of tradition and family and relationships. And eventually they can't take it anymore and they go where they can be fed the pure, pure word of God. Our brother Jim Palmer is involved in, I guess he would call a, a semi-institutionalized church where he's at 
not by choice. Uh, that's all that's there. So yeah. it, it can actually be uh, a blessing to other people around him that he remains in that area and, and speaks the gospel from that uh, position yeah. that he's in. A lot of different things happen. See, what I need to do, just so you know what the bigger scheme, what I'm trying to do, I wrote two books, one on the secret church, another on the emergent church. I need to finish that trilogy and write the third book on the church as defined by God in Scripture. All right, so I need to get all these categories lined up, and I don't want to start writing until I'm done with Ephesians, which won't be long, and then I need to write that book. But we need to see that the church is defined in Scripture. The Reformation said Scripture alone. So we're saying, therefore, the Scripture must define the church. Doesn't that make sense? But Eric and I were up in Canada talking about that, and some of our institutional friends up there kind of glazed over. They want to say Scripture alone and preach of every believer, but if they practiced it, it would blow up their institution because they're not allowed to go outside the boxes somebody drew hundreds of years ago. And you can't do the priest of every believer in Scripture alone in that setting. So I need to write a book, put this out there, let people attack it if they want to. But I think we just keep sticking to the basics, the five solas, the Scripture alone, the priesthood of every believer, that wherever the word of God is purely taught and the sacraments, I would say, ordinances practiced according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted that there you have a church. And what if it doesn't, the same little location or building or you can meet anywhere. A building isn't a church, which I think most people would acknowledge. The church doesn't own territory. The church doesn't rule over nations. And so on. And so if the group 50 years from now is gone and some, and some people believe somewhere else and gather, God just keeps building churches. The local church is always coming alive somewhere. Don't worry about creating an institution that's going to be around for hundreds of years. Where did God call us to do that? I don't see it. So I'm trying this out with you. You... You folks, I, I, I listen to you. Um, I'm laying groundwork to write a book. And so challenge me if you feel the need to. Because that, once the book was out there, uh, then I've made my statement. So then I went through every case in 21 times in Acts and said every case outside of Lydia household it was believers who were baptized. Okay, so that's what we, we did last time. Now we've got to go to this. This, when I got the pushback, some said, well, you didn't cover this one. This is the verse, they say, that proves that baptism is the new circumcision. And just as circumcision was practiced on infants and was their initiation into the old covenant, Baptism should be practiced with infants, and that's their initiation into the new covenant. 
And to be fair, those who say that will also say, as in the Old Covenant, there were those who had true faith and were really alive and believed of the promises of God and were the true Israel that worshiped God in spirit, even under the Old Covenant, and then, then there were everyone else. So it's the same way here. We're not, they're not mostly saying, although some do teach baptismal regeneration, but the ones that don't, what you say, it's just like the Old Covenant. Only now we have baptism. Well, you got another problem because only males were circumcised, uh, but they baptized males and females. But that's, is that what this verse is saying? Let me read the verse. We got to decide. Is this verse teaching infant baptism is the new circumcision and a new way of entrance into the covenant? Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, we have claimed, and I preached through Colossians, it's on the website, those old sermons, that this is not... Uh, this is referring to the circumcision of the heart, not a physical act. Notice here, um, made without hands. Do you see that phrase there? Made without hands. So made without hands would be the circumcision of the heart spoken of in Deuteronomy. Uh, the circumcision of Christ here would be that which is the circumcision of the heart. So we have in this context, let me see what I did with my slide here. I went to Romans. Um, someone look up Colossians 2.10. We have a mic that can be brought around. And then we'll get this in context. Colossians 2.10. Go ahead, Jessica. You have the mic. You want to read it or find somebody who can? Who has Colossians 2.10? Ron. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule. Oh, let me read it again. And in him you have been made complete. Complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Okay, so in Christ you're made complete. So we have four parallel truths. If you look at my slide here. Number one, made complete in him. Number two, circumcised. Number three, buried with him. And number four, raised up with him. Now I would argue that all of that is only true of believers. If you're not a believer, you're not made complete in Christ. If you, don't, if you don't have a circumcised heart without hands, made without hands, then you also are not a believer. 
and all, and then if you haven't been buried with him, the old man is dead, then you're not a believer and raised with him. If that's not true, you're not a believer. I see I got my notes here printed because I can't see them on the screen like I normally be able to. Here we go. Here's some more verses to consider. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 10.16. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 16. This was a command given to Israel by Moses. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Okay, how are you going to do? What does that mean? Anybody got an idea what it means when it commands you to circumcise your heart? Now, remember, was it last week I preached on God giving a new heart from Ezekiel? Make yourself a new heart. Finney claims you can do that yourself. You don't need a work of grace. Yeah, so it's to turn turn to God, turn away from sin. It's a command to repent. So anybody, I think that's the best way to take it. It's a command to repent. If you take it, you think, well, I can't do that. Good, now you know you need God. Right? Be perfect as I am perfect. Well, I can't do that. Good, now you know you need God. Repent and let him do it. Turn to him. Now let's look at Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. See, what I pointed out last week when I talked about making a new heart, in Ezekiel, before that passage, Ezekiel 18, and then after it, Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart. God says that through Ezekiel. So you have command and you have promise. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, here's what it says. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so you may live. So without hands that Paul is talking about in Colossians 2, 11, is not literal physical circumcision. It's not literal baptizing a baby it's God changing the heart through his work of grace so God commands the circumcision of the heart and then promises that that's what he will do just like giving a new heart in the book of Ezekiel any comments or questions on that Oh, Jessica. So if I believed in infant baptism, my response to you would be in the verse you just read, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. How would you respond to that? Well, because like we've said earlier, there's the visible, the invisible church. Not every one of the descendants of Israel believed in God. 
And it was not just, it didn't happen just because they could trace their lineage. Is that right? I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. So then would you, I, I would paraphrase that then as it's a general promise and a guideline, but it's not a specific promise that every one of our descendants will be saved. Well, they weren't it's all It's more of, of a proverb. We know that's true with, all, with Israel. Right. Okay. Aaron's sons, David's sons. Well, I'm right. I covered that last week in my sermon, if you weren't here. Last week I preached on Ezekiel 18 in one of my applications. And uh, we'll look at Solomon. He went astray. And if you have the list of kings, they had sons and some served God and some didn't. So in the end, infant bad now, if they're real honest, they say, well, we don't believe, some will say, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. So baptism of a child puts them generally in the covenant community, but they got to end up having their own faith. That's what they'll say. And some have what they call a halfway covenant. Jessica, remember what I said to you about a halfway covenant? <laughs> we should say it here just to get it on the recording. I said uh, halfway to the new covenant is 100% of the way to hell. If you don't you're not saved, where else you're going? Does that make sense? All right. So, again, there's all this machination going on trying to have this institutional church. But what if we just baptize believers? If a, if a son or daughter of a Christian family comes to faith and has to be baptized, we baptize them. That's, that's only right. And so baptism then is something that they're agreeing to that signifies death to the old life and new life in Christ. And that's only right. Why, why would you not baptize believers? Lydia's household was baptized, so I'm assuming they were believers, and it's only right. We're not forbidding children of Christians to be baptized. We're requiring that they have faith in Christ and trust him. So the baptism is meaningful in this way, the circumcision of the heart. Maybe I missed it, but did we talk about the original use of baptism in Genesis when God tells Abraham as part of the covenant to circumcise the male children. And isn't it that that was an identification at that time that they were a member of the Abraham? Well, it was the establishment of Israel as God's covenant people. But within that covenant, was promising, well, before actually Abraham preceded Israel, all right? And you have Genesis 15, the covenant was unilateral, where God goes through the pieces. You have Genesis 22, which Isaac prefiguring Christ, Moses, I mean, uh, um, 
Abraham bringing Isaac up the mountain. And you have all kinds of prefigure, prefiguring events. You have the bronze serpent on the tree, curses everyone who hangs in the tree. Whoever looks to that will be saved, and so on. Yes. Bob, just to play devil's advocate, um, yeah. I, I take that as a figure. I shouldn't use that okay. term. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I take that to be but figure. It might yeah. be appropriate now that I think of it. Um, in, infants are incapable of repentance. Well, they're, they? not, they're not able to cognitively assimilate the issues, the terms of the covenant, exactly. the call to repent, the object of their faith, the, um, and so on. We, I think we talked about that in the command for children to obey your parents that I preached on from Ephesians. It's assuming, or maybe I do that next week. One of these times I'll preach on it if I haven't already. Um, the f- fact is that they're old enough to uh, identify the meaning of obey your parents, to read or hear the word spoken and cognitively evaluate what's said and what would obeying look like and what does disobeying look like. And so you have old enough people to meaningfully interact with that. Now, over the centuries, and as I said last time I preached on this, there were people in church history who had all kinds of goofy ideas about baptism very soon after the death of the apostles. So I'm claiming that you cannot derive a valid doctrine of the church and her practices from church history, it must come from Scripture alone. And I replied that to somebody who challenged me on the Internet about it. It's got to come from Scripture alone. Now, what person whose faith comes, uh, in, in, in a sense, from the understanding of the Reformation rather than sitting in Rome and letting the Pope and the councils and the cardinals and the teaching magisterium and everybody else to find it. I thought everybody agreed on Scripture alone. So we have somewhere to go back to. So now when the most important thing, the church and her practices are on the table for discussion, who is the church, what is the church, and what practices were ordained by Christ and his apostles, we're not going to go to Scripture alone. We're going to go to church history which Luther rebuked when they were fighting Luther. They said, we are ancient, we are many, therefore we are right. Luther quoted them saying that. We are ancient, we are many, therefore we're right. So get with the program. What do Catholics say today? Look at the Vatican. Look at the gold and silver. Look at the statues. Look at the Vatican City. Look at the Pope. Look at the cardinals. Look at all the things we've done in history. Look at all of this. Well, this must be the church. And we look at it and say, look at all the idolatry. Look at the abominations. Look at the wickedness. Well, they don't see that. That's no, okay, because we know there's problems, but it's still the church. No, it's not the church. Dear saints, if we give up Scripture alone, we gave up fighting Rome. And that's why people are writing books, why I went back to Rome. 
<laughs> yep. So, yeah, there's always going to be sins and problems and needs for church discipline. But where do we go back to to get our definition of the church? I'm saying scripture alone. Now we're looking at scripture alone right here. So we're circumcised. He's not saying you were baptized as infants. He's not commanding you shall baptize your infant children. He said you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Then, having been buried with him in baptism, when exactly were we buried with him? And what does that mean? Well, the buried in baptism is telling us that there was a death to the old life of sin. There was a going away from Egypt. We can look in 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, some. Well, that's the, that's the door. Okay, I keep hearing chimes. I don't think I'm losing it. I think I really heard the chimes. <laughs> Voices in my head. So, somebody want to look at First Corinthians ten? Oh, if you have something else, that's okay. Go, go with that. Just quickly. It took me a little while to find this verse, but this uh, Jeremiah four four came to my mind. What we're talking about. And it says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart um, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So that's a call to repent, isn't it? So infants haven't repented of anything. They're dead in Adam. It's me. Ring doorbell. Okay. Um, Do you have it? No. Anybody have First Corinthians ten? First Corinthians what? Ten. Isn't there something about having left Egypt? Eric, you have that? He doesn't have it. Whichever one talks about. Uh, being going through the sea, baptized in the sea and in the cloud. It's like that first maybe um, five verses. Okay, first five verses. You you get to read it. First uh, Corinthians ten one through five. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Ah. Okay, so here we have baptism, the Lord's Supper, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and so on. Uh, Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And so you had the visible and the invisible church. Yeah. And verse 6 says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Right. So we can't say, I was baptized. 
can't say I had communion, so therefore I can live like the devil. Does that make sense? We have to show that we really did have a circumcised heart. Good. Thanks for reading that. But I think this is just part and parcel of the whole. You know, we have Mardi Gras. Go center it up down in New Orleans. Have a good old time. And then you have, what do you have, Monday, Thursday, or whatever it is, where you repent. I mean, come on. This is true everywhere you go, whether it's New Orleans or the big Baptist church down the road. I did this as a kid. Well, this evangelist is coming in a month from now, and then we'll all repent. But until then, I'm not going to because I don't have to. It's called, I can do this, Christianity. I'll do as I please, and then I'll check my boxes when it's appropriate. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Rich. That's our point. I believe that when the heart is circumcised, there is a desire to live a life pleasing to God. And uh, I remember somebody telling me when I was a brand new Christian, when we fail God, we feel very badly. And we want to get things right. But when you uh, go on sinning willfully, this is just how I'm going to live my life. Because that's what I want to do. I was baptized. I joined the church. I did all this stuff. But you have no intention of anything being different. Then you're just deceived. You're not really a believer. So the reason it's believers who are to be baptized is that it's believers for whom this is all so meaningful. That they left Egypt, (laughs) went into the sea. You know, the sea didn't open for the Egyptian army. Did you know that? They drowned in it. It didn't give them new life. So don't just claim an experience or church membership, but you need to really know Christ. So the false teachers will say, well, be an ascetic, try this and try that, but God God changes lives. Let me look at my notes here. Dr. Moo says this, but when when it is taken in conjunction the biblical tradition about the circumcision of the heart to which we have referred, Paul clearly uses circumcise as a metaphor for the transition from the old life to the new, unquote. Dr. Moo's commentary on Colossians. Romans 2.29, I'll read this one. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 2.29. Now, this doesn't mean there are no real Jews and there are no promise to ethnic national Israel. Paul clears that up later in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But the word Jew comes from Judah, and Judah means praise. And what Paul is saying in Romans 2.29 is if you don't have a circumcised heart by the Spirit, his praise is only from man. But if you do, it's from God. So his praise is from God. So again, circumcised heart. So we get an idea of Paul's meaning. 
Anybody else want to comment on that? Let's go then to the next slide here, which is Romans 6. Oh, go ahead. Bring it back there to him. Eric and I have talked about this a lot in radio shows and whatever. Uh, Bob, I was just going to mention that circumcision without hands in the Colossians 2.11, it's very significant because by hands is always something deficient and sinful in the Old and the New Testament. One good example is found in Acts 7, uh, 48, where Stephen is recalling the evil deeds of Israel and how they'd fallen. And um, he's not necessarily mentioning something evil here with David, but something deficient. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. In Acts seven forty eight, it says, Moreover, the Most High does not dwell in the house made by hands, as the prophet says. Why? Because hands are deficient. So the point in Colossians 2.11, whatever that circumcision is, it's not of man because man's circumcision is deficient. It has to be the circumcision of God, which is spiritual circumcision. So that directly refutes the Reformed tradition which says there's a link between man-made baptism and man-made circumcision. Whatever circumcision right. that is, it's not of man. The baptizing to... of the infant is with hands. Exactly. Well said. You Amen. know, that's not even hard, hard, is it, Eric? You just read the text. Let me, let me tell you something. Traditions have the capability of shouting so loudly that you can't hear the Scripture. And I've seen people who are very brilliant, who do know Christ, as far as we can tell, and really care about the gospel, be willing to almost fall on a sword for a practice that comes from their tradition, and they can't really defend it. They got to go to the same lame arguments that have been around for hundreds of years, and they can't really derive it from Scripture. And if you really are concerned about it, the, well, the whole thing goes down to the, back to the idea the church is the new Israel. Okay? Israel has been rejected. God will never do anything for ethnic national Israel. They're done. God's rejected their promises, they say, and he's done with it. So don't believe literal future Bible prophecy because that just came into the church in the 19th century uh, well, who was the guy in the 19th century that they blamed for dispensationalism, whatever? Who? Charles Finney? No, 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 not Finney. He was a Presbyterian. Darby. Yeah, Darby. And so, see, I've noticed this because I've been debating it for decades. The debate for them always has to be in church history. They will not acknowledge that someone could actually themselves, without Darby's help, read Romans and see that God still has a future plan for Israel. In Romans 11, from the text itself. But I've, had, I've got this from readers who wanted to debate me. They assume it had to come from church history because it's not even possible that I could actually read the Bible and come up with a view and preach it. I had to get it from somebody in church history. Now, if that's the way it is, and that's their argument, then they're joining Rome against Luther. 
And Rome is a rebuking Luther. We are ancient, we are many, therefore we are right. And you have to get your argument from church history, not scripture alone. And Luther just kept pounding them with scripture. Amazing how much scripture he knew. By the way, if you read his writings, kept pounding them with scripture. He rebuked Erasmus from scripture. But we want to have institutions that settle all the important things so that we can go about life and raise our families and have a title and have a building and have a history and have an institution, have colleges to send our kids to, and it'll all be good. Only when they get to the college, they're teaching Enneagram, yoga, left-wing socialist policies, um, and all of that. But, uh, but, but uh, it's not good enough. We've got to have something. One guy was arguing with me. I can't believe your view. Look at uh, Luther. Look at all the Lutheran. Yeah, Lutheran social services. They'll refer you to the abortionist. Suppose Luther agrees with that, so I told my friend I was debating. Well, yeah, you got a good point there. Do you want your name on something like that? Do you want to make sure your name goes down in history and eventually some banner with your name on it is saying, not, I'm not blaming Luther for this, but here it is. Here's where you learn yoga and uh, how to become a socialist and how to hate your country and all the things that are going on. Eric ran into that right over at Northwestern College. They wouldn't allow a pro-life speaker under their campus. So here we go. I'm not saying we can't have institutions that educate, but buyer beware, that's all I can say. Let's read this. So we have a few minutes here. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we'd no longer be slaves of sin, for he was died free from sin. Romans 6, 4 through 7. So Paul's understanding of baptism that's given to us in the New Testament is death to an old life of sin, new life with Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ. We've got to talk about imputation. I should do a sermon on that soon because it's back being denied again. Everything's the group. The group the story about the people of God in the group, not individuals having the imputed righteousness of Christ. So I'm reading a book that's like that now, uh, and it's annoying me to death. <laughs> right, Jessica? I'm supposed to get it done so I can write an article, and I get so disgusted I put it down, and then I pick it up again. The story, everything's a story. Finally, last night, I said, I think this guy should just watch the Hallmark Channel and leave us alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, sir. Tom. The, uh, 
Hold on, here we go. In, in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes of uh, one God, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right. What is the one baptism? Right here. Is the one baptism my submitting to the Lord and believer baptism and being immersed in water, or is the one baptism an act of God, the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ? It's both. If it's both, the one, one. The, the, the physical act implies the spiritual reality behind it. So is my baptism into the body of Christ at the time that I submit to believer's baptism, as we call it, and be immersed in Well, that, that's true. Now, let me explain what you're asking about. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in theology we call that ordo salutis, which means order of salvation. And so you can, when you look at conversion, you can look at the sequence of events, but as I understand it, and I'm open to being corrected, this is a logical sequence, not always a chronological one. Now, in the case of immersion, because it actually, spiritual regeneration happens at a moment, and it takes a conscious decision to go find the water and go down in there and be baptized. We see that in Acts. Why not baptize them? Ethiopian eunuch, okay? So that's always going to come later because it has to by the very nature of it. But when you look at repentance, regeneration, faith, God's eternal decision, and, and all the things that go into someone being converted, you can analyze it logically. Some of those things happen instantaneously. The baptism would happen slightly after that or maybe way after it, because of the nature, it's a physical act that has to be done through a conscious decision. But it doesn't mean it separates it from the spiritual reality of it. So it symbolizes the spiritual reality. It symbolizes, yeah, it symbolizes the spiritual reality, and it's done so in obedience to Christ. So the one baptism would be the instantaneous baptism at the point of... It's the whole, it's considered as a whole. Eric, do you have a different opinion on that? Yeah. Right. Eric says it's a symbol of the spiritual baptism. But in that particular verse, one baptism, it would indicate, I believe, I think that verse is talking about water baptism that symbolizes the spiritual reality. Paul doesn't say in so many words, but I think that would be what we would he would imply. See, look at this verse here. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. We become united with him in his death. This isn't saying, I don't believe this is saying 
that none of that happens until you go down into the water. I don't believe he's saying that. Now, some people do. They're, they, call, they call that baptismal regeneration. But because baptism was practiced in Acts, in the early church, and we know that it was, he's putting it all as one thing here. Okay, now we can divide it up because we want to study order of salutus. And chronologically, the literal baptism comes later, maybe five minutes later, maybe five months later. It doesn't matter. It's still considered a whole. So I would say the one baptism is water baptism and everything that it actually implies. The thief on the cross did not have a submerged baptism. No, but he went to paradise, didn't he? So, you know, uh, you could say it's the spiritual aspect of it is the one baptism. But I don't, we only know what Paul wrote. I can't with confidence say Paul had no idea at all about physical baptism when he wrote that. That would be saying more than I know. I think there's one other thing we see in Acts that we don't always see in the church today, and is that they believed and they were baptized. The, right. the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch believed and said, hey, there's some water. What's to stop me from being baptized? Right. Where now even the churches that um, pr- practice only believers' baptism, some of them have added this, now you have to go through the church membership class, now you have to be catechized, now you have to stand up before the church and give your testimony. There's all these things you have to jump through before you can be baptized, and I think that's equally unbiblical. That's not right. Well, let me, yeah, that's a good point, Jessica. Thanks for bringing that up. In the early church, that got so extreme. I'm talking the first 400 years of church history. There were times where it would be years. They were so worried because they thought baptism saves in a very literal way. They were so worried about baptizing somebody who was the wrong person. They just, they made them wait years to try to see if they're really a Christian. But you don't see that in Acts. Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized and then was anathematized within weeks. And they didn't uh, wring their hands and say, oh, no, 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 we baptized the wrong person. Now what are we going to do? We better institute catechism, a new process. We got to make sure there's no more Simon the Sorcerer. No, they just kept baptizing believers. Simon the Sorcerer shows up. Thy money can perish with thee. You have no part nor lot in this matter wasn't the end of the world. Does that make sense? So I don't, I think that's how it works. You believe you're baptized, but the spiritual reality is not disconnected from the physical act. But I don't see any evidence that we should baptize infants. So we'd, so we'd say then, um, I'm trying to figure out how to word it. We are, our, our baptism is an outward we're showing our obedience through baptism obedience that, a, as a sign of our true salvation. Right. But it doesn't accomplish our salvation. No. And, okay, so what about this? Let me, as long as we're going over, we're not really over. We haven't got to an hour yet. We started late. 
What about this? What if somebody thought they were a Christian, were baptized by immersion, and then later is truly converted, and they're thinking, okay, now do I need to be rebaptized? <laughs> okay, we don't. We wouldn't say you have to be. Now you know the spiritual reality of what you did when you thought you were a Christian. That's how we handle it. We don't have an incident in the New Testament that's exactly like that. I'm not, by the way, one more thing as we close. I'm not discounting the value of studying church history. When I was in seminary, I took every church history class I could get by with as an elective, plus the ones that were required, because I loved studying church history. The reason I wanted to study it wasn't to learn what the faith is about. I wanted to learn how everything got so badly astray. Okay? Church history helps us understand it. I, I'm not against knowing and studying church history. I'm just saying the Bible defines the faith, not church history. Church history has to be corrected and often is. Does that make sense? All right, now, I promise, next week we're going to just get back into action. We're going to talk about um, the woman with the spirit of Python. Next week. Python spirit. Dealt with. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the one faith and one baptism. May we understand more clearly what you said. We ask to help us and be with Eric as he preaches to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.